0: Hi, this is Dan Sullivan, and I'm here with Steve Crying for the next episode of the Free Zone Frontier. And a real treat for both Steve and I today, because we've got a great guest, a great colleague in the Free Zone, Nick Nanton. Nick, you're just talking about really expanding your business operation through real estate acquisition. But this has been a fascinating year, and I've been in touch with you a lot over the past 15 months since COVID started. And you've really taken your whole model, shaken it out, and started over in many respects. So if you could see 15 months ago where you are today, what kind of year would you say you just had?
1: Wow. I had one of the most creatively freeing years of my life. Also, one of the most clarifying, I'd say years of my life where, you know, we all get to these points where you sort of build Franken business because you're you just keep bolting things on because it's just <laughs> like everything sort of keeps working You just keep bolting it on. It's, it's very much like buying a house in a neighborhood that's been there for a long time. You go to look for a house it's like, Oh, and here's a room we built for our dog. Like, no house is quite right. It's never the house you would build if you just leveled it and started over from scratch. And there's a lot of wisdom in that. We now see, obviously, in really high-dollar real estate areas, they just scrape the house and start again. And so, in a lot of ways, I feel like that's what I did. It actually we were just talking about the gap and the gain, one of my favorite concepts. And I feel like that really helped me recenter myself because there are days I feel like I'm still just digging ditches because starting over from a 15-year business is not easy. And to be fair, it's like starting over with, 15 years worth of knowledge and education. So it's a lot easier in some ways, but it just seems like you can't get all 400 things done at the same time when you're just changing everything. But it was a an incredible year. We did make a lot of shifts and changes. And I feel like, you know, really just positioning ourselves to be really relevant in this sort of next phase of what business looks like. Certainly there there is pre-COVID and post-COVID for business. No one would deny that. What is it really going to look like? I'm not positive, but I will just take it back to the very beginning. I think the thing that changed my perspective the most was on one of the first calls we had with you, Dan, where we're talking about scary times. And I had an immediate mental shift from... My filter before was, I'm looking for opportunity that fits within my current model. And by the end of that call, I had thrown out the last of that sentence, that fits within my current model. I just scraped that off the desk and just said, I'm looking for opportunity that fits within my interests and how I can help other people and serve other people. And I think that was probably the biggest shift I had from COVID in general. Mm -hmm.
2: You know, it's funny, Nick, as you were just describing that, I reflected back on a dinner you and I had in New York before COVID, of course, talking about this very point you're making, which is, it appeared to me looking inward and working with you. It was one of my first collaborations in FreeZone, working on our both the trailer and the doc with you about startup health. And there was a disconnect for me because it looked like that your potential and your capabilities were far in excess of what the perception of my initial kind of introduction to your company was probably a year before. And I asked you that question about, was this a company you just kept bolting onto and was it holding you back? And it's really exciting to have seen what you've done over the last year in a moment like this to kind of take advantage of it to clean, both clean house, but also clarify your thinking.
1: It has certainly been that. And I remember that dinner well.
0: The other thing, Nick, is that I hear people talk about this in the strategic coach program, you know, for me, 30, 35 years. But usually the person who's talking is like 55 or 60 years old. You've had 15 years, very successful years, but you just turned 40. And the other thing is that 15 years ago wasn't really the start of your career. You were on the streets when you were in your teens, So my sense is that you've lived already what is an average entrepreneurial lifetime, and you're 40 years old. And just to fill in some background for the listeners who haven't met Nick before, Nick is a phenomenal video packager. The proof of it really lies that his video documentaries that he submits, oftentimes for kind of entrepreneurial superstars but also for particular causes, particular passions that Nick has. Have netted Nick, I think the last number that I heard was 22 Emmy Awards. So my sense is that you've put in a very rewarding, a very profitable lifetime already, and you're 40 years old, and you're now getting a clear picture on what the next stage looks like.
1: I love hearing it put that way. It also makes me feel pretty good about myself. Thanks. Uh, no, it's, you know it's been really fun. I've had a 25 year career as an entrepreneur. I mean, when I was 15, you know, teaching tennis lessons or being a clown, which we won't talk about today, but it did pay 150 bucks an hour in 1995. Yeah. So it wasn't a bad gig. But when I was doing that, I didn't have to pay my own rent, and my parents fed me and all those things. But I had to earn money to do the things I want to do and pay for my car and my insurance and my gas. And, and I had a series of jobs throughout those early years and realized I was not meant to ever, I'm fundamentally unemployable, not meant to work for anyone else. And so I learned with safety nets in a way, you know, the thing I always tell kids when I speak at universities, like my biggest piece of advice is whatever you want to do when you get out, start today. You're just wasting time if you don't. I'm not saying quit school. I'm just saying start today. So I was able to get just a ton of experience with different safety nets through college and even law school. And because I had other things to do and I had student loans and stuff so so I really used it as a learning lab and I still do that I find that I take risks differently than other people that I know but they they are calculated risks I mean sometimes I think people don't understand that but my brain just thinks that way but yeah having 25 years to figure it out the weirdest Mm -hmm. thing now is honestly the people who don't know me well would probably feel like my language the way I discuss things like it's all changed but none of it's changed it's just I now actually have language and context to speak. Like one of the first things we built was the celebrity branding agency, how it came about. I was promoting bands and I was building their brands from scratch and we'd have to take a CD at the time. We had like a couple hundred bucks. I mean, a little more than that in college, but not a lot. And we had to package it up. You talk about packaging, we had to package it up. And we had to, when we got a distribution deal to get it in the CD stores, which was, you know, the Holy Grail at the time, we actually realized, oh, wait a minute, ours has to be on the shelf next to Metallica or Celine Dion or, whoever had, you know, oodles of people and millions of dollars in budget. And we had to stack up. We had to show that we belonged there as well. And so the first really iteration of the business, my business partner, Jack, was like, hey, Nick, if you just would do the same thing you do for bands, for entrepreneurs, you'd be much happier. (laughs) You'd make money. You wouldn't be babysitting 27 children is what bands feel like. But what I've always been trying to do is build what I would call or help people be seen in the marketplace. With impact and significance, I wanted to be seen as mission driven. I wanted to be celebrity experts. People often think about celebrity. Well, I don't like celebrity for the purpose of celebrity, like influencers, not really my thing. But a celebrity expert, the reason I love the work that I do is because I work with people who are famous because they're really great at what they do. So like I got to partner with Larry King. He became famous because he was such a good interviewer. I work with Tony Robbins. Tony Robbins is famous because he's the best of the best at personal development and big events and helping you break through. And I could go through hundreds of examples. Dan, I did your film because you are the best at helping people see their own capabilities inside them. It's a philosophy. It's an operating system that's different than anyone else talks about. And so I that's what I was always after to find the best mm-hmm. of the best and help them elevate. But I really didn't have language around that. And now since I've been really able in the last year, I really dug in for some clarity. There's always be people who'd say, Oh, I don't really need your services, Nick. And Steve, I bet you would be one of these, by the way, you could tell me if I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. Nick, I don't really need your service. Like what you do. Cause I don't have a big ego. I don't, I don't need to be famous. I don't need the world to know who Steve Krain is. I want to build startup health into the best incubator of companies. And I'm like, no, no, no. I must not be communicating correctly because that's what I want for you too. Mm-hmm. I just had to learn how to show like no, I want to work with mission driven celebrity experts, people who get elevated because they're on a mission to do something bigger than themselves and they're the best in the world at it. So that's what I've really been able to sort of go much deeper on and now build language around in the last in the last year really. Yeah. If you were to describe or want to have someone
2: describe what you're doing today versus what they would have said a year ago or 15 months ago, what would be the biggest difference?
1: I think the biggest difference would be Nick builds positioning and credibility for people. And I do, I think there is always a segment of people who would think that I did it for ego, either for myself or for others. And that's just not the case, but I didn't know particularly how to articulate what was deeper than that. So there's sort of like, people would come to me and say, hey, Nick, I want to be a thought leader. I want to be an authority. And I would say, well, you know, okay, I want to build my brand. And I was one of the ones trumpeting that you needed to do that. I think I just didn't really realize how much deeper it went than that. But that's like really the shallow conversation. That's like the tip of the iceberg. Like when the real majesty of an iceberg, right, is at the base of it, well, you can't even see it. But so what I really realized is that if you show up with three things that I didn't invent, I will say I sort of discovered them by looking at having worked with some of the best of the best in the world and then back testing some of the greatest leaders that we've ever seen. There's really three things if you show up with, then you get these other things by it's just like runoff. You build your brand, you become an authority and thought leader just because of the way you operate. But the operating system is three simple things is you got to show up with undeniable wisdom. Look, if you talk to somebody and they try to make something more complicated than you can understand, you should run like hell. I learned this the hard way because I was like, oh, maybe because this person understands hedge funds or derivatives or like, maybe I'm just Oh, they're smarter than me. Okay, I'll just... I've learned that people who have wisdom are people who make complex things and make them simple. Like, if I'm wise, I will make something like the gap in the gain or who not how. Like, you take a concept that is like, oh my God, that will change the way I operate, but it's undeniably wise. The second thing, you have to show up with a true voice. A little acronym for true. It has to be trusted. People actually have to believe what you're saying. It has to be real. It has to be authentically you. If I show up and try to talk authentically about this stuff, you're going to hear my passion. If you make me show up and try to talk authentically about geometry, not going to happen,
2: right? Oh, then we're going to have to cancel the second half of the podcast um, episode. Yeah. That's where we were going. <laughs> exactly. Out,
1: right? The U is unmistakable. Look, when Tony Robbins opens his mouth or when Dan Sullivan opens his mouth or when Steve Kine opens his mouth, I know exactly who it is. And the E is just effortless. It's so within your unique ability. It's just truly effortless. So a true voice. And the very last one mm-hmm. is the one that it seems like certain people in the world All they do is win. It seems like, you know, it doesn't matter if they're starting a mattress company, a wine company, or reinventing New York City, they just win. It's just what I'd call an earned unfair advantage. And it's, you have to build a committed community. And these people we see out in the marketplace, like you, Dan, showing up and you could put a book out and there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people are gonna buy it because you've been showing up regularly through podcasting, through blogging, through small books, through free events, through webinars, blogs, and you've been pouring into the world with your true voice and your undeniable wisdom that when when someone is at the right point where they can take advantage of what it is that you have to offer from a book, to coming to Free Zone Frontier for thousands and thousands of dollars a year, you can launch whatever you want because you've spent Mm -hmm. 35 years pouring in entrepreneurs. Steve, Startup Health. And again, you guys are easy examples. You have a committed community of startup companies that even if you're not making any money from them, you are coaching them, you're nurturing them, you're helping them get to the next level. So when you show up with these three things, You become what I call a creative collaborator. And creative collaborators, they get to live an incredible life of impact and significance because they've poured in for impact and then they gain significance back, which gives them freedom to do whatever they want.
0: Right. One of the things, Nick, and I think it relates to what Steve is going to say here, is that one of my philosophies is you play a real long game with your whatever it is that you're willing to actually put in decades in developing the foundation. And to a certain extent, the model that we have in coach here in 2021 is very, very similar to the original strategy circle model that we had in 1982. So it's, you know, it's 39 years we've done the model. I'm just reverse engineering here, your true statement here. And it'd be interesting to actually do an analysis of somebody who's trying to be somebody in the marketplace and say, if you were really true, would you be doing what you're doing? You know, If you were actually real, would you be doing what you're doing? If you were really showing up as who you actually are, would you be doing? And do you find the way you're going about it is actually effortless? And how far off are you? I would actually say that playing a lawn game sort of forces you to come close to that acronym. And the reason is because it isn't a fad that you're doing. I mean, if you've been doing it for 35 years, it's not a fad. Yeah. You know, it keeps expanding. It keeps getting better over a long period of time. So can you talk about that? Because a lot of show business, a lot of what people talk about in the celebrity world is kind of flavor of the month, you know, new fashion for the season. But actually, with a lot of the work I've seen is that you're actually capturing people who've been actually devoting themselves for a very long period of time to a particular kind of value creation in the marketplace.
1: Yeah, and there's a few things that I probably don't know the exact number that I really admire. But, you know, grit is one, right, and just determination, but then also just providing value in the marketplace and being committed to doing that over the long haul and mastery, like mastery of any skill, I think is incredible. And the problem is when people set out with the outcome they desire of being an authority or a thought leader, which again, all those things happen when you show up the right way, but they show up and they usually imitate other people, first of all, because it's sort of the best they know how to do rather than you know sort of Discern and emulate maybe some of the traits that, and then make it your own. You just look like noise because, you know, like the world doesn't need another Gary Vaynerchuk or another. Grant Cardone or another Tony Robbins or another Oprah. And so the problem is that whole true voice thing, the big thing about it is you have to understand something that I'm not sure many people take the time to do the work on. You have to understand your foundational values. Because when you understand foundational values, you can speak to anything because it's pretty clear. It either aligns with your foundational values or it doesn't. You know, now one of my foundational values is I only operate within my unique ability. I know now instantly, probably I may be a little too sensitive to when I'm out of my unique ability. And I'm like, oh, I shouldn't doing this at all. But if I didn't have that as a foundational value, I just wouldn't even know. I would just be frustrated and I'd be yelling at the dogs and stuff and I wouldn't even understand why. But over the longevity of it, yes, if you're one to play that long game, I think part of that long game, Dan, is also that when we start out, we're the worst version that we're ever going to be as far as when it comes to you know mastery of a skill we're seeking to discover. So even for me, I didn't have the skill sets nor the language 15 years ago, to discuss things this way. So I had to start, like my first podcast, hopefully it's my worst one ever. Hopefully my second one's better, third one's better, fourth one's better as well. So part of that longevity is having a commitment to yourself and knowing what you're after, Mm -hmm. being flexible. We've all to be flexible to stay in business, but you're committed to certain things and you use business and other tools as a way to stay that course. Hopefully that answers what you're asking.
2: Nick, what would you say you had to stop doing? You know, you talk about unique ability, staying in unique ability there's a big difference between what you personally stopped doing and delegated to others internally or externally, but literally what did you just erase from your business over the last 12 months or 15 months, if anything, that you're just no longer as an organization or otherwise involved in?
1: Yeah, we're shifting so much of that right now. There would be a literal laundry list. What I found for myself is I had to surround myself with people who I trusted even if they weren't going to do what I would do, we have similar foundational values. So it's sort of like, you know, Dan, when you talk about giving Ben Hardy the book, you're like, I'm not going to get involved in the way you write a book, but here's what's important to me. Now go forth and do it. And so, by the way, all of that came very naturally in film because there's so many skills I don't have in filmmaking that as a director, I've really got to rely on my team. And it's just unique ability teamwork. And you know, to quote out of the Bezos letters, you know, a Jeff Bezos principle, never hire someone you don't admire. Um, I think the organization that I was the founder of, but I was no longer running, which I was very happy with, but someone who is just too different than me was operating that. And so I wasn't able to sort of inject as deep as I want to go at the foundational values. And I think part of that too is just learning what a business even looks like from not ever having one to having one with, you know, more than two dozen employees and, you know, millions in revenue. And that's that's not all on someone else. That's on me too. Like what do I want this to look and feel like? So just starting to understand, okay, I need to put in people. I need to be very solid about what my foundational values are. I need to communicate those well and bring in people who, they align with me and they're a players that align with me on that and then give them the freedom to do what they do they're not coming on my podcast and telling me how i need to adjust my questions so i'm not going to do the same i'm going to give them an outcome that i desire one of our foundational values would not be mowing over other people to get there or hurting other people to get there so okay but i'm gonna let you do it your way mm-hmm. and then i'm gonna stay out of the way
0: yeah one of the things that i've become clearer about the free zone that you actually design it backwards, that there's somebody out in the marketplace that you really want to create value for, you know, and that you have sort of a passion to create value for this particular type of person. And for me, it's entrepreneurs, not just entrepreneurs, but entrepreneurs who accept hundred percent, that there's no alternative to them being an entrepreneur. I find a lot of entrepreneurs are kind of dancing along with a fantasy that they could have done something else. But you can actually screw this one up by not committing 100% to it. The second thing is that the best way to create value for someone else is to take your unique capability and combine it with someone else's unique capability to create a third thing that neither of you could have created. More and more, I'm seeing what the free zone is. It's just the opposite of the investment model that you hear, you know, where's the fast money in this? You know, it doesn't matter if it's real. Well, we raise a lot of cash with this right from the front. I've been around that model enough for about 10 years with people that I know in that world that I said, well, what if we started at the opposite end of this whole model? And it's just pure value creation that you're transforming something about somebody's life out there. And then you come back here and you're doing it by combining capabilities that don't exist in their present form. Because you're doing a lot of that over the last year, Nick. And Steve, I mean, this is what your model is.
2: It is. And, you know, we were talking, I think, before we started recording about the change this Memorial Day weekend in the United States from past kickoff of the summer season, so to speak. But how a whole multi-generational family was able to celebrate the beginning of summer together without masks on, and the result of really a very visible in public collaboration between Moderna and the NIH here in the US and Pfizer and BioNTech, organizations that individually have great capabilities, but collectively needed to partner and collaborate in order to bring a vaccine to market in record time and distribute it Mm -hmm. and manufacture it and at the end of the day rely on technology from you know multiple decades now of research and development that never saw the light of day but it took this year the covid pandemic and a will and mindset shift of leadership of these organizations to literally figure out what neither one of them could do on their own but what they could do together is something truly unique and i think both of those organizations the fastest to get to market, not putting any of the other vaccines around the world aside, were collaborations, period. And I think without it, we would not be starting a summer in the United States, at least with a whole different opportunity to be together and come out of isolation and do a lot of things that were only dreams, you know, just a few months ago. Yeah,
1: it absolutely is. And I think, you know, Dan, the more I dig into my unique ability, the more confidence you get that there really is no competition in the world. I mean, I would Mm -hmm. argue in any event, I talked to my clients about this, there's no one in the world who has lived your story Mm -hmm. and your story is the one thing no one can copy and positions you as the absolute perfect person to serve your ideal Mm -hmm. kind of prospect, because without the experiences that I've had, I wouldn't be their guy. And so once we realize that there is no competition for what it is that you really do, I mean, I have businesses that are manifestations of some of my skill sets, but when you start realizing that there's no one who can do what you do the way you do it. It's amazing what freedom opens up. Mm-hmm. That's why I call it creative collaborators. Like that my only goal the rest of my life is to work with creative collaborators. You wanna create, you wanna create value and you wanna collaborate. If you're not interested in that, I'm probably not interested in you. Yeah. So how would
2: you differentiate Nick between an individual and an organization? So if I use, you know, use Dan Sullivan as an example, you know, you could talk about Dan all day long, but there's a organization called Strategic Coach. There's a brand that is the vehicle for so much of his wisdom to reach people and connect. And so I was wondering, as you were describing what you're doing in your shift this year, you started to talk about people, not brands. And when a person is a brand, even if it's a different brand than their name, but they're synonymous, like Dan Sullivan and Strategic Coach or Stephen Krein and Startup Health, how do you kind of help make that leap for individuals and people you're talking to who might just see themselves as the rugged individualist brand and it's all about them. Go back to that ego part, but more importantly, go back to them not identifying as anything more than a person reaching people, not an organization reaching people.
1: A lot of that is psychology that I probably can't undo in less than 30 years, but there's a lot to that. I always say, look, a brand is just a story. Branding is simply storytelling. And a great brand is a story people want to tell for you. You know, how you want to articulate that brand, whether it's through a personal brand or a corporate brand, you know, I have multiple companies and my story is a part of those company stories, but I have to try to articulate their stories as well. I would say this. I don't think I'm really capable of working with anyone who's not an entrepreneur, it's just not me, mm-hmm. or has an entrepreneurial mindset. I was coming up with some copy with my copywriter one time for a website, and I said it was we're talking about our films, and I've done films on on you, Dan. I've done them on Peter Diamandis and you know Jack Canfield, Chicken Soup with the Soul, Larry King, Robert Kiyosaki. It goes on and on. And then I was like, okay, I've done it, like a lot of biographies, like got it. And then I say I've also told stories of amazing organizations and nonprofits, and and I went back in the nonprofits who I've worked with to a T were founded by entrepreneurs. They're founded by people who bootstrapped it themselves, believed in the dream themselves. And it's like, you know what? Yeah, I at least have to work with people who have an entrepreneurial mindset. They can be the figurehead of a company. They can be the operator of a company. But if they don't have an entrepreneurial mindset, they're not really going to understand the way I think and talk because it's just Corporate speak and I don't get along well. Committees and I don't get along well. It's like, you know, hey, Steve, we doing it? Yeah, let's go. Hey, Dan, we doing it? Yeah, let's go now. My team can work with your team, but me and you are gonna agree what we need to accomplish, and then we can have teams execute
0: it. Yeah, the thing that's really interesting about that is that over the last year, there's been corporations, very famous corporations, who I think have made fundamental branding mistakes for political reasons. You know, and I was thinking about Coke. Nike has certainly done it. Major League Baseball has done it. National Basketball Association has done it. And you wonder if the people who actually started the because the people who are running these organizations are hired hands. You know, the, the CEO of Coke is a hired hand. You know, he didn't create Coke. He didn't create the positioning of Coke. And I'm wondering what happens when the organization becomes about issues that actually don't involve the original value creation proposition. And I think that, you know, the really strong brands, and I think of the queen, I think one of the greatest branders in my entire lifetime, because she's been queen longer than your two lifetimes, is that I had a feeling from watching The Crown, you know, the series on her, that... For some reason, she just got very, very clear who she had to be for the rest of her life when she was 23 years old. This is who you are, this is what you represent, and it's never going to be about anything else except who you have to be and how you have to show up. And she's just absolutely consistent. I mean, she became queen in 1953, and she's still queen. You know, and this whole thing with Meghan and Harry and everything else, they're like bouncing pebbles off an ocean liner when they, (laughs) you know, they try to compete with her. I said, you know, this woman just knows who she is and who she represents and who she's supposed to show up. So I think there's a lot to be learned there.
2: For better or for worse, by the way, right? That works both ways.
1: Yeah. It absolutely does. I think the thing about that is the queen understands the game she's playing. I'll say, you know, if you don't know the rules to a game, you can't win. You just can't win. And within boundaries is freedom as long as you understand the boundaries. And clearly, you know, it's not a life everyone would want to live. But I think the problem is you've got a Harry and a Meghan who are playing a game that they've perhaps never played before and maybe don't even understand. And so that's a, a really interesting place to be. I mean, I'm sure they have enough money, you know, that they can flounder for a while and not figure that out. But the rest of us aren't in that position.
0: Yeah. But there's just people who it's almost like they can be constant, you know, and who you really are. I really love your true acronym because I think in terms of tools, You could almost create that as something that people have to answer. And maybe you do. I don't know if if you do it. But, you know, I mean, Steve, I think what's really kept us talking to each other for a quarter of a century is really that both of us, I think, absolutely get what the other one's after Mm -hmm. for the long game. With Nick, I think it's become a lot clearer to you over certainly the last 10, 15 years what it's really, really all about. What I'd like you to do is to reflect on the technological revolution that's happened that's also expanding your thinking about what you can do in the world.
1: Well, it's interesting. I was actually just earlier on uh spatial with John Bowen on Oculus in a virtual world he's building for his financial advisors in this virtual officing. And so like That blew my mind. But just in general, the fact that we can show up, I mean, I used to never do Zooms because I was always like, Oh, that would tie me down to a desk. Why do I want to be tied down to a desk? I'll call you in the car. I'll do whatever. And I found, you know, the connection I'm able to get. We are, you know, with just body language and facial expressions, everything. I mean, there's some phone conversations don't need to be any deeper than the cell phone. I got that. But man, I feel like the conversation is cheapened now when I don't get the opportunity to experience. And When someone mutes their face or whatever, mutes their video on Zoom, I'm like, mm-hmm. it's like cheating. You know, that's like, what are we even doing here? I have absolutely loved a couple things. Gotten much more comfortable. My film crew, like I said, and a bunch of my people have always been all over the place. It was like a tale of two businesses. I had this business in here in Winter Park, Florida with employees who came to the same location every day from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. They took an hour for lunch. There's like that business. And then there was the film business where like I'm collaborating with everyone all across the globe and they're just doing their job really well and I'm thrilled with it. And so how to sort of marry those two. And now I've realized, oh, wait a minute, part of the reason why I love working with my film crew the way that I do so much is because they have the freedom to be who they really are. And that makes them really motivated and excited and passionate about the work that they do. So how can I bring those same freedoms to the people who were in the cage, if you will, for years? And obviously COVID sort of blew that up for me, but I found that Number one, asynchronous communication is amazing. It's like, um, I had an employee who was having a hard time, just the position she was in in life. Uh, Here come the dogs. I'm moving to the house across the street soon for my office. Can't wait. She was having a hard time. Anytime we'd have a conversation, it would be like that. But there's like, it sounded like eight children, 17 animals. And, you know, she has very young children. She's raising her children. I said, look, I think you're probably having a hard time giving your kids what they need from you right now. Yeah, I know you're having a hard time giving me what I want from you right now. I understand you're in a tough position in life. Like you're raising children and they're at home all day and you're working. So I was like, why don't we make your role sort of asynchronous with time? Why don't I remove you from needing to be at any meetings at a certain particular time? And you can do this other role of there's client reporting needs to be on these other things. And I don't care if you do it from... When the kids go to bed to when they wake up. I don't care if you do it at 2 a.m. I, I don't care when you do it. All I really need is just this deliverable and this outcome. And yeah. if we can agree to that, you've been a great team member. I'll have you for as long as you'd like to stay. It allowed conversations like that because to me, I've never really, it's actually really interesting. I've never really cared about how often you were in the office or not because I don't ever want anyone looking at, like, well, where's he today? What's he doing? Because I know what I'm out doing and I'm out building relationships, growing the business, creating impact. And I really was always been trying to find a way to allow allow others those Mm -hmm. same freedoms within their roles and responsibilities. And their roles are different than mine for sure. But man, I found through technology and Zoom meetings and everything else. And then just again, being on lockdown was interesting because people started to learn how to just live when they couldn't go anywhere. I started getting work emails at 5am and at 9pm that I only before would have Ever gotten between nine and six. And they were much more thought out. I was like, oh, I was thinking about this. Or I woke up and I thought of this thing. And I found that in a way, being treated like a human being <laughs> rather than being forced into this little box that doesn't fit so many people was really freeing. And now the technology and the tracking systems we have just with project management and other things, at the touch of a button, I can see if someone's on track or off track. I just had to change the scale. So I guess a long way to go around saying that is like I had to realize that there's an old scale and there's a new. Scale, and if I just changed the scale, and everyone understood what was required of them, what I liked about what they did, or you know, whatever, then we could probably all operate even better. And then now it's allowed me to bring in team members from other places I never would have considered before, and truly just have an A plus team. That's all due to technology.
0: Well, I think the interesting thing about technology is not the greatest technology that wins the game; it's the Good enough technology that everybody immediately can use yeah and I think that zoom has just created a good enough technology I have conversations with virtual reality religion the people who belong to the virtual reality religion yeah and they said no I mean in five years there won't be any zoom it's all going to be that and I said well you know you're going to have to talk 500 million people into giving up something that they've gotten used to over the last year. And it's kind of surprised them how effective it is. And my feeling is that Zoom has actually created an entirely new economy that is not well known to the usual observers of what's happening in the economy. That basically the people who are using Zoom are so busy taking advantage of it, they're not talking about it.
1: Also true. And it has like
0: just the way they operate.
1: Yeah. It's going to have to be less friction. So if I'm going to move to something new, it's going to have to be less friction than Zoom is. I mean, in a way, regardless of how much better it is, it has to cause less friction or else I'm just this is good enough. This does the job really well. And I mean, you know, if you're an enthusiast, no problem. Like hobbyists, great. Like enjoy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's going to have to be even less friction, which is, I don't think many people put that scale into their product development. It's just like, oh, it's better. The sound is better. The video is better. That's more immersive. It's all right. Well, is it cause me less friction or more? Cause that's where we should probably start.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Steve, I think that probably the investment transformation that you've been able to make over the last year has been assisted by the fact that you can talk to basically anybody who would be interested in investing at any time and feel that you're actually there with that person.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think the shift, and by the way, I'm I'm listening to the Zooming Ahead new quarterly book, got my hands on the digital download and the, the audio over the weekend, started listening to it this morning. And I was struck by a couple of them, in particular, around reframing this as a transformation, sorry, transportation capability, and really thinking about it enabling people to travel without traveling and be with people. And in particular, investors who previously would not invest in startups and funds and vehicles without first meeting and spending time together. And the fact that we can be together on a webinar, on a one-on-one chat, but see that body language and have that conversation has enabled people to be comfortable. And now being able to, go back to your friction comment, Nick, invest or subscribe without the typical friction of travel, without the typical friction of time and how much you needed to invest in making the investment has been removed. That's completely gone. And so Mm -hmm. the timeliness of having a subscription-based rolling fund for us has been game-changing because a weekly webinar now, one-on-one calls over video, has enabled us to do all of the things we had typically had to travel around the country, actually even around the world, to do even just a couple of years ago. And the willingness for people to do that has transformed.
0: Steve, I remember two years ago having a discussion that possibly someone would write a billion dollar investment check for StartUp Health and that you were taking out literally about two weeks of your lifetime to go to Switzerland. Yeah. The interesting thing is that two years ago, you couldn't have done what you just pulled off in the last quarter.
2: No, it's democratized. And Zoom has obviously, you know, the technology behind Zoom has been around for a long time. The timing of it to be accessible to so many people and everybody willing to get on and do this instead of the physical and not being able to do physical over the last year has helped. But yeah, democratizing access. To everything has been, I think, a theme across healthcare, education, and information. I think what you're even doing with your business, Nick, is about democratizing the ability to access talent, wisdom, and, and that in a way that was only a dream, would have been a dream just a couple of years ago.
0: Yeah. So we had an experience two weeks ago, and I talked to 110 new clients to Strategic Coach, and when I say new, they've either just done their first workshop or they just signed up and haven't done their first workshop yet. OK, so brand new. There were 110 of them. I was talking someone from Taiwan, somebody from uh, Vietnam, somebody from Australia, someone from Malaya, Mumbai in India, Dubai, Ghana in Africa, Barcelona, Berlin, Amsterdam. And I was just thinking there when I was doing that because, you know, we've kind of indicated over the years that we're kind of global because we've had in the past individuals from 25 different countries. But when we looked at it, yeah, there was one individual 10 years ago from this country. (laughs) But now what we're doing is that they don't have to travel. The same way that they're participating right now on this call with me is the same way they're doing their workshop. The workshops aren't every quarter. The workshops are every two months. They have a four-hour workshop, and then they have two connector calls in between. So they get 18 events in a year, 18 events. And I was talking to our very first client from Australia. He joined the program in 1994. I think 1994. He's from Sydney, Barry Vandenberg. And I've talked to him every quarter since 1994. He was the first Australian client. And I was telling him that since 1994, since we started the workshop program, 1989, we had had 26 Australians sign up for a coach from 1989 till last year. Since September, we've had 36 more sign up for a strategic coach. And they're used to, Australians are used to odd hours with the rest of the world. Right. They say, you know, I take a nap from two o'clock to seven o'clock and then I do my workshop or they do it the other way. So my sense is that the change, I've seen a big change in the last year, but the real bigness of the change is going to be seen over the next 10 years as a result of last year.
2: Well, I mean, a year ago, Nick, we were a little over a year ago, I guess January, a year ago, we were together in San Francisco for the Startup Health Festival, the last in-person event we did. It was our annual event. And at that event, we had showcases of our companies presenting to investors. We had fireside chats with experts and entrepreneurs. We had an investor dinner to introduce them to our latest investments and also fundraise for ongoing fund. We had a deal alert go out to tell people about the investment opportunities. We've taken that two-day event and turned it into a 12-month, 365, 24-7 experience. There's now showcases multiple times a month of our companies presenting around the health moonshot themes. There's fireside chats every week. So every Tuesday, there's now a fireside chat for the companies and the portfolio companies to attend. And also we've opened it up to the greater community. Our investor dinner has now become a weekly webinar. That we offer almost every week to meet investors. And we also had one annual deal alert. We now have a weekly deal alert that goes out every Friday for companies raising capital. We've kind of ripped apart the idea of a physical two-day requirement and turned it into an ongoing experience. And that has transformed the accessibility of all of this. And so now the idea that it's all digital, that it's all, you know, whether it's webinar, Zoom, whether it's email it's really been fascinating to see us systematize it. And what you just described, about what you're doing is systematizing access for people who previously, for whatever reason, weren't able to access. And that's the game changer for the next decade. Plus. yep.
0: Okay, this is the end of part one. So what we'll come back, I'd like to dig down in terms of what the free zone is for all of us as we're looking forward. I'm going to make a comment about my experience of Zoom, that Zoom is itself in technological form, is actually evidence that we're getting every day that we're now able to operate in a free zone. So I'll save that for after the break. But I think that Zoom is a very, very transformational technology in a way that nothing has been like it before that, and that the people who are using it aren't talking about it. And the reason is, if they're talking about it, they're wasting time that they could be using, taking advantage of it. All right. Wrap up for you, Steve, what you got out of the first hour. You know, I think really
2: refreshing to see how Nick has transformed his organization and more importantly, his thinking over the past 12 or 15 months. You know, things like the most exciting transformational year of his life and the things that he described has happened. You know, I think there are torches of, or inspirations of carrying a torch of, you know, not, I think, a typical approach that a lot of people have taken over the last 12 or 15 months where things either were status quo or worse 12 or 15 months, you know, uh, later from when the pandemic started. So, I love seeing that. And more importantly, you know, just seeing how there's now multiple ways of collaborating with Nick. It's not just one way. I think that's been really terrific as well.
0: Yeah. Nick? It's just
1: refreshing that there's places I can go to think like this and you're encouraged to just sort of deconstruct. And you just said so many things that gave me the whole Peter Thiel zero to one idea that I'm sure we'll talk about more in the next segment because there's mm-hmm. there's so many people who've been woodshedding and we have no idea what they're up to because it's not public yet.
0: Yep. So, anyway, I'm really excited. And this is the Free Zone Frontier. We go deep on new value creation models in the marketplace where people are not protecting themselves against competition. They're actually just creating collaborations to create entirely new forms of value in the marketplace. So, we'll be back next time with the second hour of our in depth exploration with Nick Nanton. Of how he's operating in the free zone.
2: Thanks, Nick. Great seeing you, Dan.